fair to say that the country is pretty divided on climate change and what to do about it. So can deep canvassing help to get people on board decarbonization? Is deep canvassing the pixie dust necessary to bridge political divisions? How does it work anyway? Hello and welcome to Pullback, where we explore big new ideas and ask, is this a real solution or a distraction? Pullback is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network of Progressive Canadian Podcasts. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with my co-host, Kyla Hewson. On today's episode, Kristen spoke with Montana Burgess, the executive director of Neighbors United, an organization based in Interior, BC, that led the first complete deep canvassing program on climate anywhere in the world. Neighbors United is such a cool organization, and they are working to promote community engagement for climate action across Canada. We had such an interesting conversation about what it's like talking to people about climate change and how deep canvassing can help to not only build consensus, but it actually is sort of like uplifting because it shows we have a lot more in common than we might think. I came out of this conversation really energized about democracy, and I really hope listeners will too. (laughs) Yeah, and like deep canvassing, it's like a fancy term, but it's actually not that hard to do. I've been employing it against my loved ones for the last, (laughs) (laughs) I'd say maybe year and a half to two years. I heard an episode from How to Save a Planet about deep canvassing, and it kind of focused on the story of Trail BC and how they were able to kind of change the minds of locals in a small town. That's Montana's project. That's yeah. what the folks are about to hear about. Yeah. 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 So it's like, <laughs> it's just really cool that we got like that we got to like <laughs> bring Montana on to talk with us about it because it's something that I've been such a fan of like with them for so long. So I was really excited when you were like, let's put this episode out. And I'm like, yay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think one thing that I found really sort of illuminating from this conversation with Montana is that sort of at the core of deep canvassing is really just being like genuinely curious to hear the experiences of others and coming into a position where you're like, yeah, you've got your talking points or whatever, but your primary goal is to understand the experiences and perspectives of somebody else. You know, on one hand, that is like a really simple thing that all of our conversations should be marked by, but it's also like very challenging and I think happens quite rarely in general, but especially when we're talking about things like climate change. So I don't know. I just found this a really delightful conversation. I'm super excited to put it out into the world. Um, And for those of you who are listening at home and have maybe heard me drop the climate inequality project that I've been working on, um, I think we've talked about it once before. This is an interview that I did as part of that project. So we're going to, with that one, we're going to sort of show a more condensed version of this, but we thought we'd just release the whole conversation um, as a bit of a sneak preview for you guys. I love this project that you've been working on. I love all the amazing people that you've spoken to. And I love deep canvassing. I think it's amazing. I think more people need to learn about it. And I love that it's based on questions. It's like, ask questions. All right. If you enjoy this conversation, and we know you will, Please show your love with a five-star review on your preferred listening platform. All right, let's go. Can you tell us a little bit about what Neighbors United is and sort of uh, how it got started and what it aims to achieve? Okay, so Neighbors United, we are a nonprofit based in the West Kootenays. We're almost 30 years old, and we recently updated our name to reflect kind of where we're at um, in our history, in our current moment. And we're an organization that's really focused on building healthy and sustainable communities while defending 
nature. So finding that balance of how to make sure the places that we love stay healthy as well as all the people we love. Your organization has gotten a lot of attention just for its deep engagement project, which uh, uses deep canvassing to talk about the environment. So I'm wondering if you could just set the context for that a little bit. Uh, How did the idea for that campaign start and what was it sort of trying to accomplish? We've been an organization that's been doing community organizing work. So building people power through developing leaders and helping communities take the resources they have to turn it into leadership and uh, people power to make the changes we need. So as a community organizing group, we are always looking for opportunities to move the dial on that intersection of where people and the environment are needing some support to, to get the policies that we want to make our places more livable. So over the last six or seven years, We've been organizing in different communities around the West Kootenai region, which is the southeastern part of British Columbia, kind of directly above Spokane, if you drew a straight line up by the border. And we've been helping identify supporters and turn them out to show their support for the 100% renewable energy transition. And we've been hoping that local governments would make commitments to transition all of their community energy to 100% renewable no later than mid-century. And we did that because it was like an accessible way to do something meaningful to address the climate crisis, but also have us take action in our own backyards rather than focusing on something bigger that we can't necessarily influence in the same way. So in our across our communities, we'd been, you know, going to farmers markets, having conversations with people on street corners, community events, and identifying people that wanted to see this. And then We'd get enough supporters and then we'd help them show their support to their elected officials or decision makers in their community. And then their decision makers would inevitably support the 100% renewable transition and then start working on implementing it because their community wanted it. And we helped make that very clear. And when we started working in the community of Trail, British Columbia, it was a little bit of a different story. It's a town that has a smelter in the center of town that basically processes different metals. And Trail has a complicated history. It's a town built around mining, a town built around the smelter. And you might remember in the 80s, there was a lot of media attention on Trail because there was very high levels of lead poisoning in children and babies, which is obviously a big problem for health and uh, a healthy community. Well, because of that and because of the community's dependence on this this company and this operation, it's a real frontline community in terms of impacts of polluting industry and also of the intersection of the jobs versus environment argument. And so when we started going to community events and trail, we really quickly couldn't identify enough supporters. And we realized we needed to actually hear where people were at, what was holding them back from supporting an 100% renewable energy transition, and help them kind of weigh what was on both sides of the issue for them so they could decide if they actually truly did want that or didn't. And when we were thinking about how do we do that, I had heard a podcast, (laughs) This American Life, an episode called For Your Reconsideration, where it talked about deep canvassing and what it is and what it could do. And that particular episode went over the academic kind of situation of how it was studied and shown to uh, to work. 
And so for me, when I heard that episode, I was just like, this is, this is what we need to do in environmental work. It's, <laughs> it's community organizing cranked up to 11. It's my spinal tap joke. I like to make that no one ever laughs at. <laughs> Thank you for the courtesy laugh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's really like, it's about taking relationships and authentic storytelling and being compassionate and listening to the next level. And that's what I loved about it. So for me, that relationship-based community organizing has always felt like what made sense to me because of the way I, I think and feel. So this extension, deep canvassing, this specific method you can use to engage with people, it just seemed like this is something we need to do in uh, the climate movement and in environmental issues to figure out what's holding people back and help them move through it. So we were like, let's try this in trail and see what we can learn. Wow, that's fantastic. I'm wondering um, for somebody that maybe hasn't heard about deep canvassing before, I'm curious as, if you could tell us a little bit more about what it is and also sort of what were some of the first steps that you had to take once you decided that you wanted to take this approach. So deep canvassing is a specific method of having a conversation with a person in the community to figure out where they stand on an issue and then to help them move through their internal conflict that may be holding them back on supporting the issue that you're working on. So it really relies on the person doing the deep canvas showing up and being able to listen and being compassionately curious and being able to listen and ask questions without judgment and just truly wanting to know where the person's at and what they think. If you come into it wanting to change their mind and getting a specific outcome, you're not as good at it. I don't know why, but hmm. like you have to <laughs> you have to really show up and and be curious. So if you're not actually curious, you're not going to be able to do it well. And so what a canvasser does is you have about a 20-minute conversation with someone and surprise, surprise, people are generally really happy to tell you their thoughts and feelings on an issue if they're asked. So people are always like, how do they, why do they talk to you at the door? And it's like, well, because we ask them curious questions and we genuinely want to know what they think. And people don't get a lot of opportunity to talk about big issues in that way. So yeah, it's a 20-minute-ish conversation where... Um, the idea is the canvasser shares an emotional story um, about their experience on an issue and encourages the, the other person that they're canvassing to do the same through asking curious questions and helps them really get to that bottom of why. Why do they feel that way about a certain issue? And then, you know, ask them explicitly, like, what's on both sides of this issue for you? What are some reasons you're for it? What are some reasons you're against it? Why do you think that is? And then at the end of the conversation, kind of, revisits where where do they stand on that issue on a zero to 10 scale. Um, and what we've found on the door is about someone that can change their mind about one in three people do change their mind when they're given the opportunity to talk through what's on their mind. Oh, that's really interesting. I, I'm wondering, like, you said people were really sort of willing to to talk about these issues. And, and what were some of the things that you heard that maybe surprised you or things that you heard from other volunteers that surprised them? Well, so far we've been deep canvassing. Uh, we did our deep canvas in trail on the 100% renewable energy transition. We've also been, um, we've been deep canvassing around ending tax breaks to oil and gas companies, like with public dollars. 
and we've been deep canvassing around supporting prioritizing biodiversity and ecosystem health through legislation for British Columbia. And so all of these issues, they're big issues that have to do with public tax dollars and regulation and, you know, this balance of what we do for an individual versus a population of people. So they they have lots of meaty pieces embedded in there, big kind of ideological stuff that can come up. And I think for me, the most surprising thing is the vast majority of people are really reasonable. I mean, if you go on social media, (laughs) it's horrific out there. It feels like the world's ripping each other apart. But if you have a conversation one-on-one in person, the huge, huge majority of people are very reasonable and they are curious too what's going on in the world and they haven't thought about some of these big questions before. They're often just really busy trying to pay their bills, trying to get their kids to school or daycare, trying to work their jobs and make ends meet. And they haven't been given this opportunity to talk about what's on their mind and think through why they believe the things they believe. So just the openness of folks to talk about these things and have an honest conversation has been really surprising. Yeah, that's, I mean, makes me very optimistic about the future to hear that people are reasonable and their minds are open. So that's great. One thing that I'm curious about, you said that deep canvassing works better if you start from this position where you're not trying to change somebody's mind. And I'm wondering if you could talk to me a little bit more about how you set up a conversation where I assume yourself and, and everybody else who is doing the deep canvassing had pretty set positions on those climate issues that you had mentioned and were probably in some play, in some sense looking to change minds. But how do you go into those conversations um, without that mindset when you're deep canvassing? Well, I think a reason why people love to deep canvas and a reason why I love to deep canvas is I love stories. And that's how most people learn is through stories. And so it's an opportunity for me to tell the story about why I care about taking action on climate change now and what's at stake for me. And I get to hear other people's stories about what's going on in their life. What are the experiences they're having with natural resource extraction industries and you know all the layoffs they're doing and, and big profits the CEOs are making while people struggle. I get to hear about the struggles in their life. I get to hear about what's at stake for them, what they care about, what, who they care about, what they hope for. And so I think if people can come into the conversations, like I said, being really curious and just wanting to hear where people are at and what's on their mind, then you can show up in an honest and authentic way and meet people where they're at and they're meeting you where you're at. And you can kind of go through a process together of of thinking and feeling through what's on both sides of an issue and why they might actually support a different position than they think they do when they talk through it. So one of the cool things about deep canvassing is it's a transformative method. It's a transformative way of engaging with people. Anyone who's done any door knocking before in a campaign, often you'll knock on a door and, you know, if it's a political candidate, you'll knock on the door. Does the person support your candidate? Yes or no? yes, great. Here's, you know, a lawn sign or will you give us money? No. Okay. Thanks. You're out of there. Undecided. Maybe you'll spend (laughs) a little bit more time there. Maybe leave them some literature, but it's pretty transactional and pretty quick. 
the defining feature of deep canvassing is it's not transactional. It's aiming to transform a conversation about beliefs, not only with the person you're canvassing, but another outcome is the person having the conversation, the canvassers is also being transformed because you're hearing where the person's at and meeting them where they're at. And I know personally for me, I think very differently about a bunch of environmental and social issues because I better understand where people are coming from that are different than me, that aren't in my bubble. So I'm able to have a lot lot more compassion and able to think through like, what does balance mean? What's a balanced approach? How would these policies affect someone who's in a different position than me? And that's been so valuable for, you know, being reasonable and practicing humanity. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's not sort of about concealing where you're coming from. It's more about being authentic and open-minded and curious. That's That's awesome. In a conversation, we explicitly say where we stand on the issue because we want people to know we're not trying to trick them or do anything like that. <laughs> we're coming in wanting to have open and honest conversations because it's not something we do very often. Yeah, I'm wondering if you can if you could talk a little bit about a conversation that springs in, into your mind when when you're you're talking about sort of how hearing people's perspectives help to improve the way that you think about environmental issues and coming to balance solutions. You know, what are some of the perspectives you heard that maybe changed your mind a little bit? One of the first conversations I had back when we started doing this in trail that was really moving was with a woman who was living in a pretty unpleasant situation. It was a low-income neighborhood. And yeah, she explained a little bit about her situation and how how poor she was, frankly, how little money she had and how poorly her landlord was treating her and her dogs. And she just described her personal struggle. And it was so hard to hear and was not a life that I am living. And I have a lot of privilege in that. And she shared it so openly and without anger, but with just like a lot of this is the way it is. I don't know what to do. It's very hard. And we had a conversation about her personal situation and, you know, talked about how the impacts of climate change, like wildfire smoke and whatnot, is is affecting each of us and how that's just even harder in her situation without, you know, air filters and whatnot in her home. And at the end of the conversation, like she had me in tears, not on purpose, but it was just so sad, her story. And But at the end, she was still like, but I think, you know, we need to do more around climate action. And like, of course, we need to do more about affordable housing and making sure people like, you know, her aren't stuck in those situations. But like, she saw the bigger picture of how these impacts were affecting her and people that had even less than her, like her level of compassion was just was very moving. Um, So that conversation really impacted me and made me really aware that we do do not give voices to low-income folks very often. They are very much left out of the conversation. And often because they, they don't have access to situations to share their voice or they're so busy just trying to get by, they can't come to like a community forum to share their perspective. And their stories are so hard to hear. Like I don't, can't imagine it'd be comfortable for her to be that vulnerable in a big group or something like that. So yeah, that was a very transformative conversation. And then on the other kind of spectrum, one of our uh, canvassers in our sister project in um, Alberta 
was having a conversation with an older woman um, on the door, Aunt Mary. They were talking about ending tax breaks to oil and gas companies in Alberta. And Mary started out in the conversation saying how, yeah, she totally supports oil and gas. And, you know, it's it's just who you are in Alberta. It's just who we are is what she said. And so that belief that Alberta has to stay the same because it's always have how they've been, which of course isn't true. It isn't always how they've been, but it's how they it's what their economy has relied on for, you know, 70 plus years. And so in the start of the conversation, that was her view. And then after, you know, sharing some of her personal struggles and actually getting into how she's seen people get laid off in the oil and gas industry, and then hearing more about actually how much money the CEOs are making in those companies while they're laying off workers and getting public tax dollars. She, by the end of the conversation, was like, actually, I'd rather that money go to like healthcare. The doctor situation here isn't great. And she <laughs> talked about the people she knew working in healthcare, like in uh, first response, and how hard it was for them. So helping people just talk through things that they, the blips they hear um, in news, but relating it back to like their lived experience is so transformative. And just, again, hearing her say, it's who we are as Albertans dependent on oil and gas as it is. That's such like a, I think a, a thing you hear, but it turns out underneath that isn't true once you start to unpack what that means for someone. Yeah, I mean, it really sounds like these conversations are helping people to sort of process the sound bites that they hear, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, through conversation with you. Is that sort of active synthesis? How you've been able to change minds? Do you think, or is yeah, there something I think, else at play there? I think that's absolutely true. And right now, uh, we're testing on the doors in one of our other projects, like showing people short advertisements from what is it called now? The Canadian Pathways Alliance? Is that what it's called? It used to be CAP, Canadian Association Association of Petroleum Producers, but it's a new thing now. So we're showing them the advertisements kind of at the end of a conversation and being like, so what's going on here for you? Like, what do you see? And letting them unpack it themselves. And when you start to think about it and look at it and not just, you know, see it as an ad, it doesn't get in you subliminally the way it does with advertising and marketing. And they can talk through and be like, oh, this is greenwashing. <laughs> it's not obvious. <laughs> Everything looks so nice. But then, you know, you think about the reality of how much money the CEOs are making, how much money we're giving them, and then all the workers they're laying off. Never even mind the uh, consequences on people in the environment around the impacts of carbon pollution, but just even how much money they're making is pretty, like, absurd. So... Yeah, letting them kind of look at those ad advertisements and and talk through what they're seeing is really impactful. Yeah, from from what you've said so far, it sounds like economic anxieties um, came up a lot in the conversations. Is is that is that accurate? And if so, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. That's true. And something we've really seen um, over the past eight or so months, uh, we've been in partnership on this project in um, Alberta and in some suburbs in Calgary in particular. And uh, there are suburbs actually that my, my cousin lives in. So I've, you know, I've been there before many times and it looks when you're there, it looks like people are doing fine. You know, there's, there's nice homes, there's vehicles, there's community infrastructure. It doesn't look like the stereotypical, what you'd imagine of people living 
in a hard economic situation look like. But then when you start to talk to voters, you hear about how they're really struggling. And it's not just like, oh, I have to sell my jet ski or something like that. It's they're struggling with the rising cost of living, the mental health stress from that to get food on the table for their families, to get everyone where they need to be, to pay their bills. Um, younger folks are struggling to like afford to pay rent and never mind even afford to consider buying a home. All these things we know, but when you actually hear someone's story and lived experience in that, it affects you in a different way. So yeah, I think even in a place that, you know, if you glance at it, it looks like it's fine. A neighborhood, if you talk to people one-on-one, you hear the real struggles people are facing with rising cost of living and our social programs kind of falling apart from being underfunded for so long and um, and not having the investments they need right now, like our healthcare and education systems. I'm wondering, um, are those sorts of struggles, did you find that that was sort of like one of the top barriers to climate action? Um, and what were some of the other ones that, you know, when you started out the conversation and people were opposed to climate solutions, um, what were some of the barriers for them? The biggest barrier that's ongoing and everywhere I've had conversations with people is around not trusting the government and the governments. And like, I'm in that club. Politicians do themselves no favors when they say one thing and do another. And it just like goes on and on. And it seems like politicians from all parties tend to do that, which is so frustrating. But yeah, there's a huge mistrust in government and the way the partisan system works. It's like, I don't know how we get through that. It seems like there's no end in sight. <laughs> so that's a big barrier. And we can't do anything about that barrier with folks. We can't help them get through that because like, it's true. And we share it, I think all of us. But what we can do is say, you know, like, I agree. I also don't trust them. But I know that when we work together as citizens and we make a demand very clear and there's enough of us, they have to respond and we can hold them accountable. So our democracy isn't, you know, broken. We still have elections, et cetera, and ways of it working with our decision makers. So bringing them back to that collective action power is really important. And that's genuinely what we're trying to do is build power together as average people to hold decision makers accountable and get the basic things we all need. So that's been a huge barrier and that's how we overcome it. But then other barriers are, you know, they don't trust environmentalists as messengers. So some of the big environmental groups that are constantly, you know, saying what they say, it's fine, but it's not appealing to people in the middle. It's appealing to people that already support those messages. Um, so they're not trusting those messages and messages. Another barrier is the personal cost of action, where they think it's going to be very personally expensive for them. And we hear that argument a lot, right? Like it's kind of a, some rhetoric that's out there where, you know, like, for example, where I live, local governments trying to implement climate action plans or tran energy transition plans, they'll have things in there about like incentivizing heat pumps or retrofits and people like, I don't know how, but it gets miscommunicated that they're going to be forced to have a heat pump and pay for it. And it's like, no, government can't do that. <laughs> it's, it's incentivizing you to be able to make the switch if that's something you're considering or for when the time comes, likewise with vehicles or, or transit ways of getting around. That barrier, it's actually very surface. It turns out like when people start to explore what's actually holding them back, it's not personal financial costs because that's actually quite a false argument. 
Yeah, that is really the personal cost thing in particular is really interesting that you're able to overcome that barrier um, fairly easily because it, like in survey research, it's one of the most persistent barriers to climate. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's a surface barrier. It's not something that's like underlying their root beliefs. The other kind of three big ones that I kind of put in the same bucket are they're overwhelmed by the scope of climate change, overwhelmed by the scope of the problem. And because of that, they don't think solutions are possible and or the issue doesn't feel urgent. Like maybe they're not personally being impacted by climate change yet. So it's hard if you're not actually impacted, even if it's a good friend of yours that is, it's not the same as your lived experience. So helping people find their lived experience is important and helping them understand solutions are possible, you know, showing success stories or whatever the policy we're talking about, pointing them to that and explaining like how it can make a difference. And that can also help address the overwhelming scope of climate change where it's like, we can't do everything, but we can do this one thing and it can make a difference. And we can do it if enough of us come together to make sure our decision makers know it's important and hold them accountable to do it. Yeah. I mean, that, that, urgency, but not climate doomer uh, needle is very difficult to thread. So it's it's great to hear that your conversations have been able to sort of tackle that. On the urgency side, I'm curious about, you know, how do you get somebody to a place where they recognize climate change as an urgent problem if it's not something that they're identifying as personally affecting them when they start the conversation? Yeah. And most people don't. It's where I live, even though it's so affected by forest fire smoke, like we have so much wealth in our communities, generally, personally, like comparatively to some other parts of the world. And we're really insulated from the impacts. So in our storytelling in there, we first model our story of how we've been impacted by climate change, and then ask them curious questions to draw out their story as well. So for example, for me, I talk about how I grew up in Kamloops, uh, which is a very dry place. There's sagebrush, there's rattlesnakes, it's a grassland community. And grasslands are meant to burn, right? They burn periodically to make sure it stays a grassland and doesn't become another kind of ecosystem. And growing up in Kamloops, even though it was that kind of ecosystem, there was only a handful of days where it was too smoky to go play outside. And the sun was that glowing pink. Only a handful maybe a few each summer. It wasn't like overwhelming and consuming. And now I live in the West Kootenays and it's actually an inland temperate rainforest. So very lush in comparison to Kamloops. <laughs> and the smoke here each summer, it's like almost a month of smoke now. And, you know, that's not great for my mental health, but more importantly, I have a child now who's five. And back when she was almost three or just turned three, uh, she had a cold and one evening I was putting her to bed and her breathing was very strange, very fast, very shallow, a lot of crying. She couldn't communicate as well back then. So I called 911 and while I was waiting for them to come, because I live rurally, I was holding her and just feeling kind of like panicked about, like there was, I felt like there was nothing I could do except just be loving, but I, I could see she was struggling to breathe and that was very terrifying. So they got here got her on oxygen, took her to the hospital. And it turns out that she has asthma. So whenever she gets a cold now, she becomes quite asthmatic. And it's a whole thing with puffers and and keeping a close eye on her. But with this very, very smoky summers here, I'm also very terrified about how that's going to affect her. So on the smoky days, 
we are inside all day. I, a few years ago, was at Canadian Tire on a very smoky day and like buying one of those air purifiers and kind of like arguing with (laughs) someone about getting one of the last cheap models and they let me have it. (laughs) And just really like panicked about what could happen to her if she starts getting asthmatic from the smoke in a way that we can't control. And also feeling so devastated about her not getting to have the carefree childhood I got to have playing outside in the summer every day, except for maybe a handful of days. It's like over a month now here. So that's for me what's at stake. And I like it feels overwhelming and it feels like there's nothing we can do about it. But I know there is. And I've seen successes of people working together to solve pollution problems like in trail bringing it all the way back. <laughs> um, like I was saying, in the 80s, they had a real big uh, lead pollution problem from the smelting operation. And the community came together with the industry and the government and formed a health and safety committee. And they solved the problem. They really reduced the amount of lead that goes out from the smelter. And there's still some, and any is not good, obviously, but it's way, 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 way less. And there's not the health problems there was And it's like, if we did that, then we can do it on other issues, big air pollution and soil pollution issues. And I think that's like where we're at with climate now. It's we have to solve these locally and bigger to make sure the impacts aren't too bad and that we curb the worst of them that could come. Wow. I'm I'm really struck by how much of a a role hope is playing in these conversations, it sounds like. I, I wouldn't have expected that. (laughs) yeah I mean hope Um, and I think nostalgia is another big value we see showing up where it's like this is how it used to be and here's how it is now and that feels terrible usually (laughs) (laughs) hope and nostalgia I think are two big ones I'm wondering like you started with trail and and now you've expanded I think you said to Calgary Um, what are some of the campaigns that are going to happen in the future for you guys Right. So right now we are working on ending tax breaks to oil and gas companies and figuring out how to have those conversations with people effectively. And again, that feels meaningful because the amount of tax breaks the big companies are given just keeps going up and the CEOs are getting super rich and they're laying off lots of workers. (laughs) So again, never even mind the carbon pollution arguments, but all of that feels pretty terrible and that's happening in many provinces. So that's One, we've been um, working on having conversations with people on in different small towns and suburban communities. We're also doing um, some deep canvassing around building support for a biodiversity and ecosystem health law in small towns around British Columbia. Maybe you and others know that we've got a bit of an old growth problem in BC where we don't have a lot of it and it's it's disappearing (laughs) and... uh, the province is saying they want to do more to protect it and transform the way that we manage our forests. But so far, it's just kind of little steps and not a lot of um, meaningful action that we've seen uh, transforming. And part of that is because, you know, like it seems like voters in Victoria and Vancouver are supportive, but people out beyond aren't. So we think it really is important to go have conversations with people in mill towns and in forestry towns and hear what they have to say and um, help them wrestle with the conflict of of wanting to have good paying jobs, but also wanting to make sure the places we need for our health and safety are stay intact. So those are kind of the two thematic 
deep canvassing efforts we're doing right now. Um, but then beyond that, we're exploring what are different partnerships with different groups? What could that look like across Canada and in other places? And how can we pass on what we've learned and help them figure out how to have these conversations in their communities on some of the big issues um, to kind of build community support for the things we need and counter this, this polarization and all this like misinformation and disinformation that feels so out of control online right now. Yeah. And on that, I'm, I'm curious if there's somebody like, let's say there's somebody listening to this conversation who's interested in starting a campaign like this. What would be your advice to them about deep canvassing and how to get a campaign started? You need to figure out if you need to help people resolve their conflict and come through at the other side to support your policy, or if you just need to activate people in your community to show up and support a thing, or if you need to give people some education. There are three different things. So figuring out like what exactly is the change you want to make, who are your different audiences, and what do you think they need? And then going out and testing some of those assumptions to make sure you're clear what's actually happening in your community. And then if it turns out you're like, no, I actually need, we need to have a whole bunch more people think through this issue and resolve their conflict in a respectful, non-judgmental way. And deep canvassing is the method we need to use. Well, then um, it's, it's time to get your team together. So figure out who are some of the folks that can help you and do this with you because you're going to need to have a core team. Maybe they're paid staff of an organization or maybe it's really keen community members. Um, but to be successful, you're going to need a core team of like, I don't know, two to four people willing to work on this for, you know, at least a year because you have to, it's iterative and it's, it's a labor of love. It takes a lot of emotional effort to keep showing up because sometimes the conversations are really hard and we train on creating a supportive culture to keep people coming back and letting go of those hard things and moving through them. But you need people that are committed to this method and want to see it through and uh, make it work in their community. And then I'd recommend that they visit our website and download our free Deep Canvassing for Climate Solutions Playbook and Toolkit, which is available at neighborsunited.org. And that has basically our whole story of our pilot Deep Canvas, everything we learned, all of our template materials we developed. So that's like a good place to go do a deep dive and be like, okay, this is the reality of the amount of effort that's needed to, to do this at, at a scale that's meaningful. And then we'd love folks to come and check out a deep canvas. So we do them every week online and we're, you know, over the year doing different in-person ones at different times. But uh, if folks come to our website again, neighborsunited.org and go to the volunteer for deep engagement section, they can register and come to one of our trainings and learn what it's about, have some conversations, and then talk with us about how we might be able to help you launch one. Wow, it's fantastic. So many resources for people. Uh, so thanks so much for sharing your experience here. Um, I've definitely learned a lot about deep canvassing and also about people's attitudes towards climate issues and, and how it's wrapped up in their lives. Um, so thank you for that and, and for the work that you do. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's truly been the most hopeful thing I've ever done. And it, I don't, like, I sleep well at night. I don't have a lot of anxiety about the future because I know I'm doing something really meaningful 
every day. So I'd really encourage folks to explore it if you're feeling anxiety or not quite sure what to do. It, it brings me a lot of hope connecting with people in this way.